Thank you, Pastor Sean, for that very warm welcome, and good morning, church. If you have your Bibles or your devices with you this morning, I would invite you to open them with me to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 10, and as you're finding your place, I will say thank you again to Pastor Sean, not only for the warm welcome, but the invitation to be here with you this morning as I'm having an opportunity to begin to get to know your pastor. I already appreciate a great deal who he is as just a genuine follower of Jesus Christ, and I appreciate his pastoral leadership, and I want you to know how much I appreciate your faithfulness as a church family throughout your history as a church in your faithfulness specifically to give towards the cooperative program. I had an opportunity this past week to take a quick look, and I discovered as I was looking at the history of your church that since you first started giving to the cooperative program, that as of today, up to date, your church has given $809,388.19 to the cooperative program. Praise the Lord for that generosity and for your faithfulness. I want you to know that I have given thanks to the Father right down to those 19 cents uh, that your church family has faithfully given. In all sincerity, only the Lord could know how many lives have been impacted for all of eternity, literally all over the globe. Because of your faithfulness as a church family, historically, to give, to pray, and many of you in increasing capacities to go. Well, it is good, as I've already said, to be here with you this morning on Palm Sunday. But I'm going to confess to you, church family, as we're getting to know one another, that for many years, Palm Sunday was sort of an enigma to me. Uh, if you look in the opening pages of Mark chapter 11, you know, every year we would come to church and we would see these amazing images of Jesus and his triumphant entry into Jerusalem, right? And I can remember even as a young man seeing pictures of the crowd and they're celebrating and they're throwing a huge party and they're, they're waving these palm branches and they're shouting out as it mentions there in, in Mark 11, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And then in Holy Week, just a few days later, we're, we're very quickly talking about the fact that Jesus has now already been betrayed. He's been beaten. And instead of this joyous crowd that we were celebrating on Palm Sunday, there's now this terribly angry mob, and they're standing in front of Pilate, and they are screaming and insisting that Jesus be crucified. And I'm just going to be honest, as a, as a new believer, a young man following Jesus, I was flabbergasted by all of that. And I could just remember thinking, how is this possible in one week's time? How can things go from one extreme to the other? And I remember asking the question, which is the title of our message today, what went wrong on Palm Sunday, right? I mean, how could the crowd have turned against Jesus? As I began to wrestle with that question and, and began to deal with this text at a very personal level, I found myself very quickly, church family, struggling with a, a darker question, if you will, a more troubling one. I remember a season of studying the same text and asking, well, what would it take for me? What would it take for me to turn against Jesus? Now, that's a different question altogether, isn't it? Then what would it take for the crowd to turn against him? 
And so do we have the kind of courage to ask ourselves that question this morning? I want to invite you to follow along with me. We're not going to read the text about the wonderful triumphant entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. Instead, we're going to look at what is it that happened that caused the crowd to turn against him after that day. And so beginning in verse 12, and I'm going to be reading this morning from the NIV. I'm sorry I didn't have the, the Holman, so it'll be a little different from what's on the screen. Uh, but follow along in your copy of God's Word. Beginning in verse 12, the Bible does tell us that the next day, the day after the triumphal entry, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. And so then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered into the temple area and he began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those who were selling doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry merchandise in or through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations? But you have made it into a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this. They began looking for a way to kill him. For they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, they went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered, and he said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. May God had a blessing to the reading and now the public preaching of his word. Well, when you read that text, it suddenly starts to make sense, doesn't it? When we understand that this is what Jesus does immediately upon entering into Jerusalem after that triumphant in entry, we can understand how the crowd would begin to maybe turn against him even violently so, right? I mean, this is not what anybody was expecting him to do or to happen. And even though I have read this text probably thousands of times over my life, I will confess to you, church, I still am not really able to, in my mind, envision or visualize what verses 15 and 16 are talking about. I mean, are you? I'm just not really able to do it. Jesus shows up and just begins to create a true fracas. I mean, the Bible tells us that he's turning over tables and he's throwing chairs. If you read John's account of this same episode, John tells us that Jesus gets off in a corner before everything starts happening and he makes a homemade whip and he uses that whip to physically drive people right out of the temple. Folks, I just am not able to really envision that story. And yet, as we begin to look at it, we look at verse 18. You know, the Bible sometimes it just in simplicity states things. When it says that they were afraid of him and that the people were astonished, I would say that's probably an understatement of biblical proportions. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, they, were, they, were, they couldn't believe what just happened. And you could just see folks shell-shocked looking at one another. Did he really just do that? Did, did Jesus really just say that? Well, he did. And so, of course, it forces you and I this morning to begin to ask the question, why? Everything that we see here in these verses is so uncharacteristic 
of Jesus' overall life and ministry and the way that he carried himself, that it forces us to slow down when we see this text and begin to ask, what's going on? What is it that Jesus is really wanting to teach us? Well, we're going to get to that. It's obviously the focal point of our time in God's Word together. But before we get there, I just want to remind you of why this is so important for us today. You know, I've already shared with you that my original question, my personal struggle with this text was, was very much a question of, of what would it take for me, what would have to happen in my life for me to turn away from or to turn against Jesus, what would that look like? But now that I'm serving as your regional consultant with the Kentucky Baptist Convention, and now, brothers and sisters, that we're living in a day and time when unprecedented numbers of our children, our grandchildren, who are being raised in the church seem to just be walking away from the church, walking away from Jesus. Now that we live in a day and time that the fastest growing demographic in our state, if you look at all the census data, are the nuns. And no, I don't mean the very pious ladies you know, who wear the funny hats, but people who would say, I'm not affiliated with any faith. If you are asking the question today, what faith most defines who you are as a person, the majority of people living in Kentucky today would say none. None. And so all of these realities of our day and time, they stir up a different set of questions for us. But the amazing thing is, is the same events that caused this joyous crowd to turn so violently against Jesus, I think if we're open to it and we look at it carefully today, those events can also answer for us why people continue to turn against Jesus even in our day and time. And why we're seeing more people turn away from him than what we have historically seen in states like ours here, the Commonwealth. And listen, I want us to... Excuse me for a second there. I want us to understand as we look at this this morning. Here's what I think you'll find as we look at the text. We're going to find that our problem isn't really with Jesus. Our problem that we have today is with corruptions of his church. It's when the church of Jesus somehow becomes about something other than the person of Jesus, that's when things go sideways and things begin to go wrong. And what is encouraging, what is inspiring to me as we look at this text, is the same things that annoy you and I, they actually offend the Lord Jesus Christ. And some of the things that can turn people off today against the church, they actually tick off Jesus. Now, I know that's not a very spiritual way of saying that, Pastor Sean. And Sean's thinking, man, I don't know why I invited this guy to come preach. But us farm boys tend to say it simply sometimes. And so, forgive me, but let me show you what I'm talking about. On Number one on your outlines, too much consumerism in the church. Too much consumerism in the church can turn people off, and listen, it can tick off Jesus. Now, we know that we're consumers, right? We live in a consumeristic society. And let's be honest about it, and there are reasons why this is true, but people, they shop for churches today just like they shop for anything else out there. Would you not agree? But what we need to understand this morning is that that tendency for me to want to put my own personal needs and my personal preferences above everything else and a desire to find a church that's going to fit my needs and that's going to make everything easy or convenient for me, it's not really new, is it? I mean, how did the money changers get to into the temple to start with? 
They were there to make life convenient, right, for the people. Uh, Now, we don't have time to go too far down this particular rabbit hole, but I do think it's important for us to understand their reality as we look at this text this morning. And so in the book of Exodus that I, I cited for you in your outlines for this morning, we won't go there, but what that text teaches us is that every year... Uh, It's tax time, right? Every year they had to pay a temple tax in order to be able to participate there. It came due precisely at the time of Passover, about two weeks ahead of Passover every year. Now here's the thing, the Bible teaches us they had to pay that tax in shekels. And so these money changers were there in the temple to serve a very practical purpose. They would convert the Roman currency of the day, the commercial currency that they used, into shekels. Nobody carried shekels anymore. You couldn't use shekels anywhere. You couldn't buy things with shekels. The only place you could use shekels was at the temple, and you had to use shekels to pay the temple tax. Kind of talk about a church that was really out of times there, right? Verse 15 also mentions that Jesus was throwing these benches that the people who were selling doves would sit on. Now, as strange as that sounds, no, they were not operating on the side, a little Vegas-type wedding service or anything in the temple. But but if you look at Leviticus, again cited in your notes, the Bible tells us that these doves or, or pigeons were the offering that God had prescribed for poor families. Families that did not have the financial means to come and and to make a sacrifice of a larger animal, God had made allowances for that. And so you had two options, right? You could either bring with you these doves or pigeons as you as a family were traveling into Jerusalem from wherever it was you lived out in the countryside, or you could just buy them when you got to the temple. Now what would you do? It's kind of a no-brainer, right? Uh, In fact, all of this makes perfect sense. They had taken what was necessary and they had made it easy and convenient for the people. And so you and I, we look back and we say, what's the big deal? What's the problem with that? Obviously, there's nothing wrong about making it easy for people to go to church, right? I mean, there's nothing wrong about making it convenient. I know that every one of you who are here this morning, you're thankful that it, for everything that Pastor Sean and your ministry staff can do to make it easier and more convenient for you, right? To be able to attend, to serve, to worship God. But there's a slippery slope there, isn't there? And you can recognize it. Making it easy for people to serve and worship God is one thing. But bowing down to and and beginning to cater to and, and beginning to prioritize above other things the personal preferences of people, that's something very different, isn't it? And so let me kind of show you where this slippery slope can take us and why this is such a big deal. When I began to bring too much of my consumerism into the church with me, when I began to make spiritual decisions based off of what's easiest for me, if I began to make spiritual decisions for me and my family exclusively based off of my own personal preferences or how I like things, do you recognize Jesus is no longer the center of that equation? He's no longer the focus of our worship. If you will, Jesus is not going to be Lord in that dynamic. Jesus is no longer going to be the focus of the church, but instead, who is? Us, right? And and oftentimes, it becomes a very specific version of us. 
And so we have to be very cautious here. Number two on your outlines, where that will lead us, is too many clicks in the church. Uh Uh-oh. Too many clicks or clans, whatever word makes more sense to you, can turn people off. We, We can understand that, right? And it also could take Jesus off. Now, we recognize why this is true, but Jesus confronts it for us in verse 17. And what Jesus is doing in verse 17, he actually is quoting the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7, when Jesus says, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. Now, church, it's important that we slow down and we understand this. This is so important. If you were to go home and it's cited there in your notes and you were to read Isaiah chapter 56, you would immediately recognize this is one of the many, many texts that we find in the Old Testament that very clearly communicate to us that God's desire, His ambition, His purpose for His chosen people, Israel, is that they would be the people through whom God would use to reach all peoples. And if you read the first six verses of chapter 56, what it describes there are these foreigners who have come to faith in the Lord. These strangers who were living in the land who have put their trust in Jehovah God. And now they are beginning to come to the temple because they want to worship Jehovah. They want to serve Him. They want to come and offer their sacrifices to Him as well. And in verse 7, it's like this culmination of thought where God begins to look upon this and say, this This is a good thing. This is right. This is the way it is supposed to be. And God affirms it by saying, My house is to be a house of prayer for all nations. A place where the people of God are found praying for all nations. But church also, a place where people from all nations are welcomed, they're received, and they are worshiping the Lord God as well. The tragedy is, is that the people of God never really understood the heart of God. And instead of becoming a house of prayer for the nations, they literally began to build these walls to keep out other nations. And the Jews began to create every kind of barrier you could imagine to keep out anybody and everybody who isn't like us. If you know anything about the the actual design of the temple in Jesus' day, Where was the only place the Gentiles could go in the temple court? That's right, thank you, in the the court of Gentiles. Now, if you've ever seen one of those diagrams or drawings of the temple, you would know that that court of Gentiles was located as physically far as you possibly could be from the Holy of Holies where the the presence of God was and yet still be considered to be inside the temple. Anybody want to take a guess on where the money changers had set up their tables? Yeah. They had taken the only place in the temple where a person from any other nation could come and worship God. They took the only place that a Gentile, we, could go and worship the Lord, and they had turned it into a marketplace. Folks, they had turned it into nothing more than a glorified animal auction. No wonder Jesus is upset. No wonder this arouses within him this righteous indignation and anger. Now listen, Pastor, you talk about a dysfunctional first impressions ministry. I mean, that's it. And while I have never found an animal auction out in the foyer, and I've yet to see like sheep pens set up in the guest-designated parking lot, I'm, I'm sad to tell you, brothers and sisters, I have walked into some churches in our state that were putting out basically the same vibe. 
And they couldn't have made it any more evident unless they had nailed a sign to the door that basically said, you ain't one of us. You're not welcome here. Folks, it, it arouses the same kind of frustration and righteous indignation in our Savior today as it did then. And what about us? You're working hard and you're making invitations for people to come on Easter, on Resurrection Sunday. But I ask the question, if, if, if the people who God commands us and calls us to pray for, these, these people of all nations, if they actually showed up on a Sunday, if they walked into our churches, would they feel welcome there? Would they feel welcome? How do we see the church? Do we see the church as a place just for us? Or do we really begin to see it as a house of prayer for all nations? You see, we have an option. We can truly love our neighbors. We can genuinely love the people who live around us in our community and therefore inspire within them this desire to want to know more about Jesus, to maybe want to try His church, to build a bridge of faith for them. Or we can go to the other extreme and we can begin to demonize our neighbors. We can begin to demonize people who aren't like us, who don't look like us, who don't talk like us, who don't think like us. And if we begin to do that, man, we begin to throw up walls we create barriers we start turning people off against Jesus we start turning people off to the gospel we turn them off to his church and listen no wonder they would have no desire to come and see what it's about right so number three on our outlines too many charlatans in the church <laughs> there's a word we don't use all the time too many charlatans in our churches can turn people off for a lot of folks, the aha moment in this story comes in the second part of verse 17. Jesus begins by saying, My house should be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it into a den of thieves. And so we hear people say, Aha. I mean, there's the, clearly the problem with this. These money changers were crooks. These people who were selling doves to the poor people, they must have been taking advantage of poor people. And we know that God hates it when we take advantage of poor people. It's an offense to Him. And while, church, I believe that probably just knowing human nature, all of that was probably taking place, I believe that God was also trying to, to deal with something much deeper and broader than that. In fact, the second part of verse 17, Jesus is once again quoting or at least referencing one of the Old Testament prophets. Jeremiah chapter 7 verse 11, the, the prophet who comes in your Bible immediately after Isaiah who we dealt with just a moment ago. And I think if we're going to understand what Jesus is saying here, we need to see this verse in its original context there. Because Jesus, who, who was the author, the inspirer of the Word of God, he knew exactly what Jeremiah 7.11 says. And so when he references it, he does so for a very specific purpose. So what I want to encourage you to do is let's mark our place in the Gospel of Mark. We'll come back and, and finish that out. But very, very quickly, Jeremiah chapter 7, I, I want to begin reading with you in, in verse 8. And in verse 8, the Word of God, Jeremiah chapter 7, God says, Behold, you are trusting in lying words that cannot profit. And then God, through Jeremiah, begins to ask a series of questions. Will you steal 
murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, burn incense to Baal, walk after other gods whom you do not know, and then come and stand before me in this house which is called by my name and say, we've been delivered to do all these abominations. Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of thieves? Do you see it there? Has it become a den of thieves in your eyes? Behold, I, even I, have seen it, says the Lord. And so we have a tendency, we want to apply this statement immediately to the money changers. Now why do we do that? It's easier to call somebody else a thief than to admit you are one, isn't it? I know a lot of you have probably read some of Francis Chan's books or maybe have participated in Bible studies that he's written for, for the churches. In one of his earliest books, Francis Chan makes this argument that he says the majority of church members today don't actually want to be saved from their sin. They just want to be saved from the consequences of their sin. We don't want our lives to be changed by the gospel. We want to live our lives however we choose to live our lives and for God to come along and say, it's all right, it's going to be okay. Isn't that exactly what the prophet Jeremiah is describing here? When he asks, when he says, we've been delivered to do all these abominations, that's just Old Testament language to, to tell the same contemporary Bible Belt lie that a lot of people hear today. And it's this idea that I've been saved and so I can live however I choose to live my life. God's grace is going to be greater than my sin and so I can just go sin it up. I, I can do what I want to do and because if I come and I ask, God will always forgive me. Church, the Lord looks at that scenario and he says, based on what? Based on what? The, the fact that you've got your name on a membership roll somewhere, the, the, the fact that you attend a church from time to time, the fact that you hear this in Kentucky all the time, that your granddad was a Baptist preacher, what's that got to do with anything, folks? And Jeremiah, he exposes this whole line of thought and he begins to compare us to a bunch of thieves who are out wreaking havoc on the town and on the community. We're committing terrible crimes and, and committing audacious acts and then we go running back to a cave. We go run into a den where we're going to hide and it's like, man, we've gotten away with it. And it's the same idea that we see in so many people's lives today. They think they could just go live however they want to live. They can do whatever they want to do. And then they can come run to the church and it's all going to be okay. Folks, Jesus looks at that and he says, is that what church really is to you? Is that what this house, which is called by my name, is that what you think it really is? And in texts like this in Jeremiah, he says, do you really think I don't know who you are? You really think I don't know what you're really about? You, do you really believe that other people can't look at your life and see the difference that they can't see right through you? We have so many people today who, just as Jeremiah warns us, they have bought into a lie. See, I think the problem in our Kentucky churches today is we've got too many professing Baptists who have gotten inoculated against the gospel. You know how you go and you get your vaccinations, your inoculations, when you're a little kid before you go to school, or, or some of us before flu season, or if you go and you travel internationally, you go and get your, your vaccinations and immunizations over again. 
And what they do is, right, they come with just enough of the virus. They give you just enough or a dead version of the disease so that you'll never catch the real thing. And what's happened is Kentucky, too many of us have gotten just enough of the gospel. We've been given a dead version of the gospel message so that we'll never be able to really hear, we'll never really be able to listen or surrender our lives or get saved by the power of the real gospel of Jesus Christ. And folks, it's a tragedy because we have people who are basing their lives on an inadequate explanation of what the gospel really is. It's just like the fig tree in our text. On the outside, everything looks great, but there's just not any fruit there. And when people look at our lives and there's no fruit... When they look at our lives and all they can see is a blatant hypocrisy in the way that we're living our lives or a benign religiosity that has absolutely no real power to it, it turns people off. It would turn you off. It would turn me off. Who wants to be a part of that, right? Who wants to be a part of something that isn't real or authentic? But listen, please hear me this morning. Our problem's not with Jesus, right? Everything we're talking about this morning, these things, they frustrate and, and they disappoint and they even arouse righteous indignation in our God because Jesus recognized them for what they are. They, they're just counterfeits. They're distractions. They're things that get in the way that keep us from seeing God for who God really is, from really experiencing God's best for our lives. And listen, Jesus is passionate about you having the real thing. That's the whole point of the fig tree. I know when I was reading the text, for some of you, you were listening as a text and following along, and you were sitting there thinking, man, that whole thing with the fig tree seems sort of random. I don't know how that fits. Why did he bother reading that part of the text, right? But in reality, the fig tree is the key to understanding it all. Jesus is so intentional about everything he does, and so this story about the cursing of the fig tree, it sandwiches the cleansing of the temple so that it can interpret it for us. If you're going to understand what Jesus is doing inside the temple, you have to understand what he did outside in this cursing of the fig tree. Now, and So let me wrap up our time very quickly with this. Now, I've heard some people look at this text, and they've told me that basically what Jesus did here was throw a supernatural fit. Uh, he was hungry, he wanted some figs, he goes up to the fig tree, there aren't any there, and so pfft, he just zaps it. Now, that sounds exactly like what I would do if I had the power to do it, but if you know anything about Jesus, that doesn't fit, right? It's not who he is. In fact, Mark tells us it wasn't even the season for figs. You see, in Palestine, a fig tree, it carries leaves basically all year round except for about two months in the dead of winter, but, but it only produces figs in June and November, twice a year. Now, do you think the disciples knew that and Jesus didn't? That, that Mark somehow discovered something that Jesus didn't know? I think since God's the one who created the fig tree and determined in the seasons in which it would and would not give fruit, I'm pretty sure Jesus knew exactly what he was going to find when he walked up to this tree. He also knew the point that he was wanting to make. And so here it is, listen. That tree gave every sign of life, right? It had leaves, it looked great, but there was no fruit. There's no fruit there. And so Jesus curses the fig tree. But what he was really doing was giving us a lesson, an object lesson, that what he was really condemning were these empty, 
the, these corrupted versions of church, this, these powerless practices of worship that were taking place inside the temple of God. And what we need to understand this morning is that Jesus stands just as firmly against those same things today as he did on that day. And why does he get so angry here? Why do we see this kind of passion? Do you know what this really is here? This is a passion for the glory of God, yes, but it is also a passion of Jesus for you and your life. He wants you to have the very best. He wants you to experience abundant life, eternal life by faith in him. He wants you to have the kind of fruit that reproduces itself over and over and over again in the lives of others. And Jesus cleanses that temple because he doesn't want anything to stand between you and what he has prepared for your life. And so this morning, church, what, I, what I'm hoping that we can see this morning is the level of love that he has for us. He begins Holy Week by cleansing the temple. By setting things back at square, we know he ends that week on the cross. Paying the price for our sins and the messes we create. And making it possible for you and I this morning to experience the real thing. To experience real life in him. And so we have a choice we need to make this morning. In just a moment, I'm going to lead us in a time of prayer and Pastor Sean and Ryan are going to come and they're going to lead us in a time of invitation this morning. All of us have a choice to make today. And in one sense, every one of us here today, we're either going to turn to Jesus or, or in a manner of speaking, we're going to turn away from Him, aren't we? We're either going to turn to Him and put our hope and our trust in Him or some of us this morning, we need to turn back to Him. Because the reality is, is, is the problem with this inoculation with the gospel is that we have a tendency to turn ourselves off to it, don't we? We think we've heard the gospel. We think we know what the gospel is. We think we've tried Jesus and it didn't work. And so we just turn it off. And, and, and it's not that we've turned away. It's not that we've left the church. But we're just going through the motions. Some of us this morning need to come to Jesus for the first time. Would you give him a try today? Some of us, we need to give him another try. Because what you tried before maybe wasn't the real thing. Pastor Sean would love to explain to you this morning how you can experience the real thing in Jesus. And so church this morning, I just want you to know that he loves you. He has a glorious plan for you. Today, he wants to, to bring that to you. So this morning, we're inviting you to come to give Jesus a try. We're inviting some of you to come to talk to your pastor, maybe just to come and find a place on the altar and just do some business with the Lord this morning, saying, God, I realize I've been going through the motions, but I want to get back to you. I want you to be the center of this. Some of you, man, we would invite you to come and join this church. Pastor Sean would say, yeah, we're not perfect either. Uh, praise the Lord, did not make some of the mistakes we see here, but no church is perfect because all of us are imperfect people just trying to follow him and here you could find a home where people could help you with that whatever God would lead you to do this is going to be the time to do it would you stand with me for a word of prayer as Ryan and Pastor Sean come father we wrap this time up looking to you father we put our hope our trust exclusively in you we thank you for the truth of this text Lord we thank you that we can see the passion you have for your people the passion you have, Father, for souls. God, I know there are some here today who are far from you. 
Some, Father, who've never yet found true life in you. And, Father, some who have, for whatever circumstances in life, have begun to wander away, have begun to drift. God, in this time, would you, through your Spirit, draw them to you. God, do in this invitational time what only you can do as we surrender ourselves to you, in whose name we pray. Amen. How deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that He should give His only Son to make a wretch His treasure.